Well, good morning. This is the first uh, Sunday of the month, and I've over the years tried to do this, haven't always done it, but I like to remind you that in this class that we have a four kind of basic values. We try to remind us of these. And by the way, uh, over the last uh, time, we've had people sometimes give a testimony about how one of these values has been in their life. And if you're interested in that, come talk to me. You can just share with the class here in a couple of minutes and, uh, and do that. But we have four values that we try to keep lifting up. Number one is Bible study that doesn't just inform, but what? Transforms. Yeah. We're not interested in just studying the Bible for information. We're really concerned about studying the Bible so that it transforms or we can apply it to our life. That's the first value. Number two, second value is prayer support. Prayer support. In our world today, in our times, we find that uh, there are a lot of times that we need people praying for us and with us. Now, you know what? If, uh, and I think I've got that on there. No, let me back up here somewhere. Uh, I am techno savvy now. Uh, if you're not part of the prayer network and you'd like to be on that where you can receive prayer requests and you can also send them, you can send your email request or your, your, your request at to bsanders at crossingsokc.org. That's Becky's email. If you're not on there, you'd like to join, like to be a part of it. And that way you can then kick a prayer request out. We, we've had times like during the middle of the week when something began to happen, a, a, a real emergency and there's like 80 people that are on this thing and able to get that right out to people right then. And I know there are people right then just stop and pray. So if you're interested in that. So prayer. Third is compassion outreach. Uh, we've over the years uh, uh, taken up money here in the classroom to help people, to, to assist them with needs that we find out about. In addition to that, we've, uh, you know, you guys have provided uh, backpacks and things like that. We always want to keep clear that it's not just for us. It's not just to be here, uh, but to be involved in compassion ministries or even ministries around in this room uh, that, are, that are part of that, Water 4 and some others. And so we want to keep that clear. We want to keep that in front of us, that it's not just come, get, 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 but, take, uh, but to, uh, to give. And then the fourth one, the fourth value uh, is friendships that develop here together. And uh, we've used dinner for eight and other things like that. But I do notice uh, uh, that people have a tendency uh, to sit together and be together because some friendships are forming. And that's an important thing. Now, I, I want to say to you, you know, be sure and let new people come and sit at your, at your table. You know, don't give one of these. What are you doing here? Uh, you know, I know some of you sit in the same place. That's all right. Bill. They have to provide breakfast to you. All right. Yeah, but, but really, friendship. And, and we, we know this is a big church. And, uh, you know, there have been several times when I've had people say to me, why don't you just put chairs in here and line them up? And that'd be easier to sit. And I say, because things happen around these tables. Friendships, relationships, sharing, uh, even people uh, just getting to know each other. So those four values are things that we want to keep uh, up front. We want to keep them in front of us and keep working toward them. And if you have a story or something, a couple of people come to me before and said, hey, uh, the prayer initiative or like that worked in my life like this or something, uh, come talk to me and we'd like to hear from you. Well, good morning. Let's go to John chapter 14. We've been hanging out there a little while and uh, just a bit. Um, you know, I was thinking about that. Let me remind you that as you turn to John 14, that John 14, 15, 16, and 17 represent this time in Jesus' earthly ministry for the last night, if you will, of his earthly ministry. And this is really, I know it looks like stuff on paper and it's pages and we read it, but let me remind you that this is an incredibly difficult, stressful, um, hard time for the followers of Jesus. Uh, he has been telling them he's leaving. And there, is all, there, are, there are all kinds of forces coming together uh, that they have some sense is happening and so it's sort of, if you will, as I've worked through this, there, there are such um, significant ideas. Uh, I actually had someone Sunday, or Friday, I know, were in my Bible study uh, going through 1 Samuel, and somebody accused me of going too fast. Oh. I, I said, stop that. Wait, say that again. Say that again. They did. They accused me. And that person's in this room, and they know who they are. They accused me of going too fast. So you got to watch out now. Part of the slowness here has to do, at least in my mind, to thinking of the themes and ideas that are here. That Jesus really is laying out some significant 
end-of-life kind of conversations. You know, we've all had those with our loved ones, those kind of end-of-life. Now, Jesus is not coming to the end of his He's going to end his earthly ministry, but he's still alive. Don't know if you heard that. But, uh, you know, I've heard people say that. Well, you know, if Jesus were here, what? You ever heard people say that? Well, you know, if Jesus were here, he'd be upset. I think he's here. <laughs> but at the end of his earthly ministry, these kind of statements. So I, I want to look at here under this idea of uh, what we've done here is truths that make a difference. Now, that, that could be the whole section there, obviously. But in this uh, one section, I'm looking at this, and here, as I'm reading and studying, I'm thinking, here's some truths that Jesus had worked. Last week, we looked at some things that Jesus has left for us, uh, the Spirit, a promise, those kind of matters. But this seems a bit of a transition into what might be considered truths uh, that make a difference. I, when I think about this, I think of a conversation uh, that happened uh, some years ago between uh, Steve Jobs and John Scully. Between Steve Jobs and John Scully. Steve Jobs had begun with Steve Wozniak to start this little company called Apple. And uh, we've heard of that, I think, a couple times. Uh, here in, use poor language, uh, about this computer. Uh, but when Jobs was trying to get uh, Apple going... He made an appointment to meet with, uh, with uh, John Scully, who was the CEO for Pepsi. And the reason he was interested is because uh, Scully had developed something called experience marketing. Experience marketing. Where you don't even hardly uh, remember the, the product. Uh, you remember that, that Pepsi started the thing called the Pepsi... Yeah, they did a pretty good job, didn't they? The Pepsi Challenge. It was called experience marketing where people would have an experience where they would taste test and things like that. And, and Jobs was very interested in that because he's about to start this little company called Apple. So he meets with Scully, talks to him about, I'd like for you to join me. In fact, the, the computer had not even gone into production yet. Uh, they, they hadn't even made it. They were just, they were working on it. And so he wanted Scully to join him. And the conversation goes a bit <clears throat> that, uh, uh, Jobs is telling him what they're going to do and how they're going to change the world. He probably, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but it probably come out in the movie. Uh, he, he, uh, he may have said that Thomas Watson, who was the former CEO of IBM, had famously said that when they talked to him about computers, that there would never be more than five in the world. That's why you don't see many IBM computers, <laughs> you know? He may have said that to Scully. I don't know. But he was making his case to Scully that he ought to come join him. And he ought to be a part of this. And he said, the truth is, we're going to change the world. That's what we're going to do. Now, Scully is the CEO at Pepsi and has a jet and a, you know, uh, one of my dreams someday to have, a, have an executive bathroom. You know, <laughs> I just, that would be great. You know, my own, nobody else in there. You know, just, just my own. I, I, it's a weird little world up here. Um, <laughs> executive bathroom, you know, had a credit card, all this kind of stuff. And so he's asking Scully to join him to change the world, to say, here's the truth. We're going to change the world. And Scully declines. And at the end of the conversation, uh, Jobs before he left, uh, at the end of the conversation, is said, said to, to John Scully, well, John, if you don't want to come with me to change the world, you can stay at Pepsi and keep producing sugar water walked off, walked out of that room. Scully says he went home that night. And those words, you can keep producing sugar water, ringing in his head, ringing in his head. Is that what you're going to be known for? And the story goes, as you may know, that John Scully, a few days later, resigned from PepsiCo and became uh, the managing helper with, uh, with jobs to start Apple and now they are the largest cash-holding company in the world, as I understand, except their stock went down last week. So I'm just hoping the new iPhone is going to be cheaper. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a truth that makes a difference, isn't it? He told them the truth. He said, you know what? You're making sugar water. You know, okay, you can do that if you want to. But the truth of the matter is we're going to go change the world. And if you want to be a part of that, you can. Jesus makes some statements here, if you will, and beginning at verse uh, 28 he said, you've heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced 
because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. Now, I have told you this before. It happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Just watch the sequence there. We're going to come to that. I've told you this so that when it happens, then you'll believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing with me or in me. But so that you may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me, get up and let's go from here. Now, I want you to look at this under these truths, I think, if you will, that really make a difference. Number one, the first one is an initiative that gives hope. The first truth is an initiative that gives hope. Notice what Jesus said in verse 28. You've heard me say, I'm going away, but I will come to you. I'm leaving. Now, you can imagine, again, the stress that these guys are under, that Jesus begins to express or to declare, I'm going to leave, but I will come back to you. Now, I think the initiative here, obviously, to begin with, where Jesus says, I'm going to come back. You're not going to have to go find me. You're not going to have to go look for me. I will come back to you. I want you to keep thinking about that and that idea. Now, obviously, I would say that the initial meaning would be the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm going away but I will come back. I'm going to come back to you. And this speaks to the matter, I think, of Jesus taking the initiative of saying, I'm not going to ask you to go find me. I'm coming back and I'll be here. This idea of the resurrection, it's a big deal. In the context here of Jesus coming back to them, he's suggesting to them, you will not see me for a while, but I will return to you. You remember the, the, I guess, I think I've got the right name I, I, the, of the movie or the, the, the television series last spring, was it? The Bible? Was that it? Do y'all watch TV? Yeah. It's right after Big Bang. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember a, a scene there. I think it was the Bible or whatever that thing was last spring. Watched through it. You know, the title didn't make much sense to me, but the, the, the story. I remember in that movie the depiction of the disciples in the room after Jesus had been crucified and they've heard that he's risen from the dead. And I remember that depiction and seeing that, that whenever there's in that room feeling, if you will, a sad feeling, afraid, and then Jesus appears. I, I, it was one of those moments when I said to Becky, I have some sense here, just a little bit of what that must have meant. Can, can you imagine seeing Jesus die on the cross, put in the grave, and then there he is? I would have probably been a doubting Thomas even if I'd have seen it. <laughs> you may have also. I mean, that, that's beyond the pale of our, of our understanding. But Jesus takes the initiative to say, I'm coming to you. Second of all, I think this initiative is certainly what he's been declaring. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. He's been declaring over and over again, that I'm coming to you through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I, I'm coming to you. He's already said that before. I'm going to we talked about that last week, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But here Jesus is speaking. I'm coming to you. I'm not asking you to come to where I am. I'm coming to you in the days ahead. Jesus will be taking his rightful place. There is the suggestion here, I would say, <clears throat> that Jesus is saying, as I come to you, I'm going to come and live in you. We've talked about this over time, but I just, I just want to remind you. Christianity has this unusual statement and thought that the presence of God, not in some just pantheistic way where God's everywhere. He's in a cup. You know, he's in the garbage can. Uh, he's, you know, in the car. You know, that, that pantheistic idea kind of gets in us. But the idea of Jesus is, I'm going to come and dwell in you. I'm going to come and live in you. Even the great Augustine made this observation that sometimes when we're looking for God, we're looking for him out here. You know what Augustine said? Look inside. Look inside. Now, you know, some of us who feel bad about ourselves or, or, you know, don't think we're that good of a person. And, you know, I agree with some of you, but uh, no. <laughs> Some, just a few, just a few, just a few. I've got, I get your names. Uh, we don't feel good about ourselves like that. The, the notion or the idea that Jesus is saying, I'm going to come to you. I, I'm going to live in you. Some have suggested, and I think it's accurate, 
We'll talk about this in more detail. I told you we're going to have a Pentecost celebration on May the 15th. That one of the things that this speaks to is that where God had before dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, He has now inhabited the temple of people's lives. That we now are the temple. Remember Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 6? You are what? The temple of God. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place. And so Jesus takes this initiative to say, I am coming to you. A little girl one time was asking another girl, said, hey, have you found the Lord? You know, you ever heard people say like that? Yeah. And this girl said, I didn't know he's lost. <laughs> you know, there's a truth in there that some of us think we have to find him. That we have to take the initiative. That we, that we have to put the energy behind it. I'm reminded of Harry Emerson Fosdick, a great preacher of the last century. I don't agree with everything that he said, but he said this. He said, some Christians act as if the shepherd is lost and the sheep have to find him. Think about that. Some Christians live and act as if the shepherd is lost and the sheep got to find him. Instead of that the sheep are lost and the shepherd is carefully, lovingly, persistently looking for you. I think my life and your life could be understood a little clearer if we understand in our life who has to take the initiative. Who has to take the initiative? Is it on me? Is it on you? Or is it on Jesus that says, I am coming to you? That's been the story of the Bible. We've run from God all of our lives, haven't we? We, 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 we've run from him all of our lives and he keeps coming to us. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps seeking for us. One man called him the hound of heaven who won't let up the hound of heaven. You know what I think you ought to think about this week? I think you ought to think about in your own life and I'll, I'll do it myself, not about your life, my life. Okay. Leave me alone. Here we go. I'm in finals this week. I, I think it would be helpful if you and I would think of a time when we would say, you know what, I'm, that's pretty clear to me that God took the initiative toward me. That God took the initiative. It, it, it may have been that you had a friend that came and talked to you. Or it might be that somebody, you know, people used to do this all the time. You know, maybe somebody invited you to church. And, and, and you aren't thinking of anything like that. You, you just, but, but God was using that person to make the initiative. I think in my own life, lots of times when I can look back and say, you know what? I think I can see God's initiative in my life. I can look back. You know, Kierkegaard always said that it's 2020 backwards. You know, it's hard to see God this way, but we can always see him backwards. So I, I wonder if you would this week think about this, and here's kind of that application. What if you started each day this week with the thought that Jesus is taking the initiative to be with you? He's taking the initiative. Or you recall how Jesus has taken the initiative with you in your life and thank him for that. A time when, when you know, when you look back on you, you know it. You, I'm not asking you to make anything up here. Whether through a friend or a situation, or a circumstance, or in your life, when you could say, this seems to me to be clearly the initiative of God, that he took the first step. I, 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 was, I remember, you know, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I was over at a friend of mine's house with three other guys, two other guys, there were maybe two other guys, and we were talking about surfing, which we thought we were great at. Galveston, Texas, you know, the, the waves are about this high. You know, it's like somebody dropped something in a bathtub and... Yeah, we, we, we thought we were ready to go to Oahu, man, you know, hanging tin. We would have been hung tin. We were over at my friend's house named Fred, Fred Easter. Uh, Fred still uh, lives in Houston. And we were sitting around talking about surfing and girls somehow came up in the conversation. We were 16 years old, <laughs> and um, as we were talking, uh, as we just discussed this matter, I could take you right there on Concord Road in Beaumont, Texas in February 1970, 
And we're sitting around talking about surfing and girls. And one guy said, what do you, what do you, what do you think would happen to us if, uh, if we didn't make it tomorrow? And we said, what are you talking about, man? And he just asked the question. And we got to thinking, I don't know. What would happen to us? Now, 16-year-old guys don't usually have this conversation, you know. They're just guys. And as we began to talk about it, we began to get concerned and think, you know, maybe, maybe our lives aren't where they're supposed to be. I remember we called our pastor, called him up at 8 o'clock at night and said, would you meet us at your office? I can tell you this, from, my, from that day, my life has never been the same. I wasn't doing that. I wasn't trying to make that happen. I wasn't going over there to try to cause some discussion. God's initiative through the power of the Holy Spirit did something in that moment that I couldn't have anticipated. And had I known it was happening, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> if I'd have known we're going to have a big, deep spiritual discussion over at Fred's house, I wouldn't have gone. I wasn't interested in that kind of stuff. I was learning to play rock and roll on my guitar. You know? So the idea of God's initiative, God's initiative. Second thing here. The identity that calms us. Look here. Verse 28b. When he said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to, I'm going to come to you. And if you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. The Father is greater than I am. Now, you've, you've been around me enough, you know this, but I, I think it bears repeating. If we have a view of God that is not accurate... And it becomes the culmination of a lot of our experiences and a lot of our training. Instead of understanding God as Father, it's going to be tough. We said this before, Chris, that the, the thought you have when the word God occurs is the most powerful, most descriptive thought in your life. I'm going to say it again, that the thought you have when you hear the word God is the most powerful and descriptive thought in your mind. You, do you know when you know that's true? When you get the word that you get cancer. Then that what comes to mind about God gets real serious. When, when, when you get laid off or you have a problem, what comes to mind when you hear the word God becomes terribly important. William Temple, who was an archbishop in England, made this statement that I read years ago and have thought this is the truth. He said, that if you have an incorrect view of God, the more religious, he's the word devout, the more devout you are, the worse it is for you. Think about that. If you have an incorrect view of God, the more religious you are or the more devout you are, the worse it is. And here's what he says. It would be better for you to be an atheist. Think about that. If you have an incorrect view of God, one that is not informed by the person of Jesus, one is not understood as God's revelation, if you have an incorrect view of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is. Because you're being formed and malformed, Temple said, by something other than God. I read that some years ago and it knocked me to the floor. Because I had wrestled with and dealt with and ha hassled with for years that my view of God was that God was ready to take me out in any moment, right? And of course, knowing me, you would say, what? Amen. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. This is something that 30 years ago when I first came to teach at the university, I didn't hear a lot about. I was talking about it. Now I'm seeing more and more and more that people are understanding that if we have an incorrect view of God, all the other stuff around Christianity and religion won't make much difference. All the other stuff, all the encouterments, all the other jazz that we do, if we don't get this thing dealt with, if we don't deal with this issue, who is this God? Jesus says, His name is Father. Now, you know, I work with my students and I tell them, that word doesn't always bring wonderful images, right? There are some people that their relationship with their father or uh, an adult male like that is, is tough. A friend of mine said it took him 50 years to wipe the face of, the, wipe the face of his father off of God. Think about that. It took him 50 years to wipe the face of his father off of God. For some of us, that's been a challenge, hasn't it? Or for some of us, our view of God has been terribly affected 
by the training we came up under. I'll give you two ways real quick. You've heard me say this, but there are two ways you came to your view of God, basically. Two basic ways. Number one is through significant relationships early in life. Through significant relationships early in life. Dads, moms, grandparents, all that. This is how we form our reality. So through significant relationships. I noticed when I was a kid growing up how much God sounded like my dad with a deeper voice. <laughs> and louder. <laughs> right? We're not blaming anybody here. We're not, we're not trying to blame anybody. We're trying to understand. See, Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. If you knew this, you'd be glad. Because I'm going to the Father. So we develop our view of God through significant relationships early in life. We can't, we can't evaluate them. We can't say, well, that's not right. We, we just, they just come in. You know, kids are born and brought into a home and, and somehow gets communicated, you're in the way. We didn't want you. You know, we, you're trouble. Or uh, we, we come to the idea that we're, it's always our fault. So significant. The other way is powerful is this. It's what I'm calling uncritical reflection on life. Uncritical reflection on life. I remember when I was a pastor back in Louisiana years ago, I was leading a Bible study. And there was a guy in there in the Bible study who'd been a pastor. He wasn't anymore. You're going to be thankful here in a minute why he wasn't. He worked now for the post office, which I wasn't sure even there. <laughs> but he came to me after the Bible study and he said, you know, I enjoyed that. And I figured people lie about that. They lie about anything. So, you know. Um, that'll get back there in a minute. But uh, uh, he, he tells me, he says, uh, you know, I used to be a pastor. Uh, okay, I, I mean, I think I knew that. And he said, but you know, I kind of got away from the Lord. I don't know what that means, but kind of got away from the Lord. He said, and uh, to get me back in the ministry, the Lord drowned my nine-year-old son. Now, my mouth doesn't usually get ahead of my brain. But I just said to him, that's not possible. You're not that important. It's not possible. You're not. I, I'm serious. I, I said, you're not that important. Can you imagine going through life thinking uncritically that God drowned a nine-year-old boy to get a knucklehead back in the ministry? What is that? See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this a lot in his theology. He talked about God of the gaps. When something happens that's so bad that we can't figure it out or it doesn't make sense to us, we put God in there. Another, when I was in seminary, 19, whatever it was, I can't remember now. Before I graduated, there was a bus that was coming back from a youth camp in Ohio, back to Kentucky. Everybody still had all their teeth. And that's a bad Kentucky joke. That's a bad Kentucky joke. They're riding the bus. They're coming through Florence, Kentucky, up there by Cincinnati. And a guy who got drunk got up on the wrong side of the freeway and hit the bus and sheared it down the side, exploded it, incinerated it, and killed all those kids and the bus driver. And the only survivor was the drunk in the pickup. <laughs> he just got out of prison, actually, in Kentucky. I mean, it, it captured the state. It just it, it riveted everyone. What a tragedy. And they had the funeral, and the... News people are, are, if you will, uh, outside and talking to people. They come. They had at least the decency not to, to go in. And they talked to a couple of people. I'm, I, I know these people are good people. I know they, they love the Lord. I know they're doing the best they know to do. And they ask them, so how's everybody doing? Well, we're doing as best we can. So what do you think about it? Well, you know, the Lord wanted to take them home. Really? That's the only explanation you got? Are you kidding me? The moral consequences of that kind of thinking? God thought he needed 17 young people in heaven, so let's get a drunk guy to get so drunk he can't know where he is, and let's incinerate him. You know what? For a couple of minutes, that might people give people some comfort when they're in the funeral. But about six weeks later, they start waking up and saying, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would need 
first of all, Disney, to take these kids home in a flaming inferno. I want to suggest to you that some of our views of God have more to do with our attempt to try to make sense out of senseless circumstances. I've told you before, I believe that God is in charge, but I don't believe he's in control. He's not causing everything that's happening. Now, you may think I'm a heretic. I don't think he's responsible for everything that's happening. I don't think he's causing all of these things in the world that are destroying people. I believe he's a father who loves his children and loves the world. I've said before, it's like this. God's like a basketball referee. I wish we'd have had one on our side last night. (laughs) Or just suit him up. (laughs) Man. A basketball referee doesn't control players. He can't stop from hitting each other. But he's in charge. He sets the rules of the game. He determines how you're going to participate. He can't control them. He's in charge. Now, I know that's a heavy thought. But I want to tell you, I think this notion of the nature of God as Father, we have to dig around in this. Because I know people whose view of God has been powerfully impacted by uncritically reflecting on life. And it may work for a while. But at some point, if you're going to think that everything that happens is somehow God's will, your wheels on your uh, car are going to come off. That's why Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know why? It's not. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? It's not. It's not. That's where we are, are participating. That's where we're a part. I know that's a heavy thing, but Jesus is saying something here to us. This is the identity that calms us, that gives us peace in the midst of trouble and difficulty. And if you and I see God as a a grim reaper or we see him as one who's keeping score and got his book there, there's not going to be much calmness here or the ability to get through life. Now, the other thing here that's interesting, this identity, is when you study the Old Testament, The name Father, with respect to Israel, only shows up about 15 times. It's not a very common term. You know, we're Christians. We've been Christians so long that we just assume, uh, you know, that everybody knows God is Father. That's not true. In the Old Testament, it shows up about 15 times. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's a very uncommon idea. And uh, and in certain traditions, like the rabbinical or the rabbis, there is no evidence in any of the rabbis' teaching, that anyone ever addressed God directly as Father. Nobody. You can look this up. You can check on it. That this notion here that Jesus, I'm going to someone named Father, is a radical idea. It's crazy, if you will, the intimacy and the closeness. They called God Elohim, Adonai, El, I love the bit, this one, El Roy, the God he sees. Yeah, all these kind of things, they never even pronounced his sacred name, Yahweh. Never. If they wrote it, they only wrote it with four dashes. That's what we see in the manuscripts. They never even wrote it. This notion of God as Yahweh, the sacred name, it's not a name they throw around. It's not something they talk about. They never even vocalize it. Jesus said, I'm going to somebody named Father. Your Father. I want to tell you, that's going from here to here. That is a massive shift in the understanding, if you will, of what Jesus is referring to here is God as Father. And I just recommend it to you. There's this evidence that Jesus came, if you will, to tell us about a Father. Think with me just a second. What would be the attributes of a good Father? Love. What else? Kindness, what else? Huh? Encouragement, Encouragement? yeah, what else? Huh? Provision, guidance, discipline for your, yeah, protection, yeah, guidance, all of those kind of things. You know, what, are, are, are we better fathers than God is? <laughs> you know, we know what a good father looks like. Are, are, are we saying that, 
that we're better fathers because we want to do those kind of things when we ascribe all these other things to God that seem to be so morally reprehensible? I think we have to think about that. I, I will tell you a couple of books if you're interested in this particular area. One of them by J.B. Phillips, which is an old book called Your God is Too Small. J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. Another book by Hannah Whitall Smith, The God of All Comfort. The God of All Comfort by Hannah Whitall Smith. Incredible book. And again, it comes back to this, that the thought that you have in your heart and your mind about God is the most determinative thought in your brain. It's going to be how you see reality. It's going to see how you see tragedy. It's going to be how you see uh, success. It's going to be connected and dialed into every one of those areas. It's going to be where you experience loss. It's going to be where you experience great gain. It will have everything to do. And if you think about it, you know that. That every time something happens, especially if it's difficult, the question of why. Why would God let this happen? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? You know, my students say to me, well, God allows, he, he allows everything. You know what? If I want to go mow the yard this afternoon, he'll let me. I don't want to. <laughs> if, if I want to go join the circus this afternoon, he'll let me. If, if, if you want to, if, if you, you know, God will allow you to do anything, right? He's not going to control you. He wants to influence through his love as a father. Now notice Jesus says something else here about the identity that calms us. Notice what he says. Uh, you would have rejoiced. I go to the father. The father is greater than I am. And I just want to take a moment here as a, as a quasi-theologian. I'm interested in that. This verse here, the father is greater than I, has caused all kinds of problems throughout church history. Uh, there's a, there's a, a teaching that had been in the church for some time and that is this kind of subordination of the son. Uh, and it's a heresy. It's a heresy. It's like God is the big God. Jesus is the junior God. And the Holy Spirit, we don't know anything about him. You know, we, we just, we're not sure. But, but this idea of he is greater than I. In fact, the church early on uh, had to struggle with this, with the subordination idea of Jesus less than God. And the scriptures teach, I think, that the God is one person or, or one substance in three persons. It's a big, big technical term. But this idea that Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. Now, let me try to say what this might mean, and you can look at this later. Some have suggested that Jesus is less than as he empties himself in the incarnation. Jesus is a fascinating one to watch because he makes statements that are either kabuki theater you know, he's just goofing around or it's real. When he says, I don't do anything unless I hear the father tell me. Why? Because as Jesus is in this incarnate state, Philippians 2 tells us this. He emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant. What does that mean? He did not cease being God. He ceased using his power for his own interest. We know he had power, didn't he? He healed people. He raised people from the dead. You know, he, he, he forgave people. He had God power, but he never used it for himself. Think about this. Jesus emptied himself. John Wesley or Charles wrote the song, God, he emptied himself of all but love. And in his incarnational state as a man, he becomes emptied, if you will, of that power for himself. And in that sense, the writers say it this way, that as a human being created here, or as a created human being, he is less than in the sense of voluntary service. I know that's a lot of mouthful here. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus never ceased being God, but he submitted himself to the Father in the incarnation by taking on all of the limitations of a human being. And you know what? Again, we've been Christians a long time. That sounds right, doesn't it? Say that in the first century and people say, you're out of your mind. That God could take on human flesh, limit himself voluntarily. The Father's greater than I. Jesus lived in absolute dependence on his Father. 
in this state of the incarnation, he empties himself, takes upon the form of man, Philippians 2 tells us. He's always God, but he is limited by his humanity. He's involved, if you will, in real life. In our, uh, in our uh, center group a few uh, year or two ago, I remember we were asking the question, uh, Bill and a couple of us were in there, we were asking the question, could Jesus have sinned? And the immediate response was, no. And I went, yes, <laughs> to be a little irritating. Right? Think about that. Could he have? Could he have? If he couldn't have, then temptation is not temptation. It's kabuki theater. You know, th this whole notion is, again, one of those staggering truths that Jesus entered into this world fully. And by virtue of that, depended on his Father every moment of the day. See, that, you know, that, this sounds all theological, but what starts rolling around in my head is this. What if Cliff depended on the Father like that? What if Cliff had a clarity and understanding that I have to depend on God like that? How would that work, I wonder? I wonder what that would be like. If, if I had the clarity and understanding that Jesus had to say, I've got to depend on my Father every moment of the day. You say, well, I'm just human. Okay, stop that. <laughs> he was what? <laughs> or Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way as we were. Every way. Just like us. I want to tell you, the, the incarnation bothers me. I wish God would have just sent Superman. You know? Because this has something to say with how God has so entered the human experience to transform it. He has so entered the human experience to transform it. He's greater than I. I'm God, but I'm in the flesh in this incarnated state, and I'm depending on him every moment. That's where my problem is. Isn't it yours? I, I, I depend on myself. I say, I got this, you know, till a tornado starts coming, <laughs> right? Or some other thing happens. I got this until I finally have to face something, if you will. That's going on that I can't handle. Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is a staggering truth. You know how long it took the church to figure that out? Where they could articulate it? 300 years. 325 Nicaea. To be able to kind of just figure this out. How does this work? I, 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 I read hymns at times sometimes because they poetically put in language what I think. Clothed in mystery clothed in mystery. This one named Jesus who is going to the Father, who knows the Father greater than he is, this, this deference of him to his Father to depend on him, he enters the human experience to transform it. To what? Depending on his Father. Why don't you try that this week? Why don't I try that this week? So here, here's what I'm asking you to think about. What if every time you have to show your ID or look at a picture that you pause and consciously recall the identity of God as Father? I want you to do that this week. Maybe you have to use your ID or you look at a picture. I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will take that in your mind and say, okay, Cliff, okay, Bill, okay, okay, Stan. Remember, what's the identity here of God? Father, Father, Father. Then third, and we'll... Get finished here, baby. The inversion that helps. Look at 29. Now, I've told you this before it happens. So then it would happens, you may believe. You know, when I read that, uh, the, 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 there's an idea of inversion here. Generally, in my understanding of the New Testament, it says if you believe something, then what? You'll see it happen. If you, if you believe it, then you'll see it. But here Jesus saying, I'm telling you this before it happens so that when it does, then you'll believe. You notice that? That's inverted. In other words, I'm telling you this so when you see it, you'll believe it. Not, no, not now. Hey, now believe it now first and, and then you'll see it. There's an inversion here. 
Jesus is suggesting to these guys, I'm telling you something here that I'm going to tell you now so that when you see it, you'll be able to believe. I think personally this inversion here has something to do with the difficulty they're in. These guys and, and these people here are in a struggle. I mean, they don't know what's happening. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus said, here, listen, I'm going to help you out here. That when you see this happen, you'll be able to believe because I told you before. It's a merciful thing, if you will, this inversion. This, wor- this matter of letting his followers know. We, we, we don't know where you're going. We don't understand what you're doing. And Jesus says, okay, well, watch this. When this happens, when you see me, when I leave and, and come back, then you'll believe me. Has God been merciful to you like that? Has to me. Where I didn't believe something, God did it anyway, and then I believed it. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, I tore my, ankle, my knee up playing basketball. It's an ugly thing. Tore it up, couldn't walk very well, was kind of limping. And, uh, and uh, one day at church, uh, the pastor said, if anybody wants to come have prayer, then uh, just you know, come down here and, and we'll pray for you. And I'm, I'm standing there, and I thought, well, I could do that. And I thought, nah, that's, God's not interested in my knee. You know, cancer, the Middle East, those kind of, he's busy. And so I'm just kind of standing there, well, kind of, kind of standing there. I was like this. And uh, finally, uh, uh, he, I just kept getting that sense, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go. I didn't believe. Really, I didn't. I said, I'll go. I'll go down there. I went down there. My, the pastor laid his hands on us and prayed for us. And when I got up, I went, hey. I'm healed. I, you know what? Now I believed. <laughs> I didn't believe before that. You remember in Acts when the people are praying for Peter who's in jail? Remember? And they're praying, oh, God, let him out of jail. Oh, God, let him out of jail. Right? And God lets him out of jail. Then he comes and knocks on the door of the people's house. And this little girl named Rhoda goes up there and they, she, she sees it's Peter, and she slams the door in his face <laughs> and runs back and says, hey, everybody, you know, we're praying about Peter's at the door. And they go, you're crazy. It's his spirit. You've lost your mind. That gives me hope. <laughs> did they give you hope? When they saw it, what did they do? Believed it. <laughs> yeah. Is God... That compassionate to you at times? He says, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And when you see it, you'll believe it. When you see me work, when you, you see that, we, again, this is all tangled up with the way we see ourselves and the way we see God. And he's saying, look, I'm, I'm telling you this right now so that when, when you see it happen, then you'll believe. And I'm wondering in my own life and I'm wondering in any of our lives at times that, that sometimes God in His mercy is willing to invert, if you will, the process. Willing to say, I, I'll take care of this. I'll do it. We just think God sometimes is so difficult to deal with, don't we? If we don't say the right thing or do it the right way or believe the right thing. Instead of just saying, you know what? I, God, you're so good that there are times when you invert the whole process and say, I'll do it, and then you can believe. It's happened in my life. I'm sure it's happened in yours to some extent. What if this matter of inversion, that God is willing to say, I'm willing to do this, and then you'll believe. I read a guy one time, he said that some of us uh, in our lives, we're not real comfortable with God. We're not very comfortable with Him. He's a little prickly, isn't he? He seems to be a little prickly at times. Instead of someone who's a father, instead of someone who says, I'm going to do this for you. And then when you see it, you'll know. And you don't have to recriminate yourself or put yourself down. But say, you know what, God? You're a big God. You know how to do things better than I do. Can you identify something like that in your life now? To say, you know what? I didn't believe. I didn't really believe that much. God did it anyway. And he did it now as an opportunity for me to be able to say, I do believe. I do believe. I just see here when he says, I've told you this. So when it happens, you'll know. 
Is God that good? Is he that interested in you? Is, 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 he, is he willing, if you will, maybe the circumstance you're under right now to do a little inversion? So you know what? These guys are in a tough place. Maybe you're in a tough place. Maybe, maybe you, you need to see that, that Jesus will do some things for you. Maybe you don't even believe yet. But he'll do it so that you'll believe afterwards. Is he that good? I mean, I think I could go around this room and find everybody, somebody at every table to say, you know what? That's been my story, hasn't it? That, that, that God has been that good that I can look back and say, I didn't really believe. God did it anyway. And now I can have confidence in Him. I can have trust in Him. I think these are important things. You know, we started out with this idea of truths that make a difference. Does it, does, it, does it make any difference to you who has to take the initiative in this relationship? Does it make any difference to you? Does it, does it, is this truth any about the nature of God? Is, is this truth we're talking about, you know, that, that His identity really is a Father we can trust? Is that, is that an important truth? Is it, is it an important truth that, that God may invert what you consider to be the process to say, I'm going to do this anyway. And then when I do, you'll believe. You see that good? I'm going to do it anyway. I, I'm, I'm not prickly. I'm not, not hard to deal with here. I'm going to do it. I, I'd like for us, some of us, that the, the pressure would start going down a little bit on the inside. And quit, like one of my friends says it this way, quit trying out for God. Remember tryouts? Remember in baseball, you know? Had to go try out, see if you made the team. Maybe, maybe in, in knowing these truths, we, we could quit having to try out. Quit, quit having to try out for God. And let Him... Bring these truths into our life to where they, we live with God a little easier. A little easier. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we've looked at some things today I know that may be disruptive. It, it, it may cause us to have to take a look at some of the way we look at things. That's me included. So I ask that as we get into this week, that you'll help us as we try to apply these truths. Some of the ways I've suggested, Lord, there are other ways that people can do. You know that. But some of these truths, Lord, I, I am convinced make a difference in the way we live and the way we relate to you. And so I ask that you take your word not mine, yours, and place them in our hearts that we might be people who these truths have made great difference in our lives. We look to you, we trust you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.